This episode of Health Gig is part of the Evolution series powered by Paragon. We are working with Paragon Performance Evolution to bring you a special series of incredible speakers which have been hand-selected from their network to be our guests on Health Gig. Paragon works with companies to bring in authors and thought leaders who can help implement hands-on programs which focus on transformation, integration, and greater awareness. They blend the best of modern science, human behavior, and timeless wisdom into all of their programs, which is why we are so supportive of the work they are doing in this world. We are thrilled to be collaborating with Paragon Performance Evolution for this very special series and so happy to bring these conversations to you. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Amy Killen, board certified in emergency medicine with 10 plus years of direct patient care, has been practicing anti-aging and regenerative medicine. For more than five years, Amy has a fellowship trained in anti-aging and regenerative medicine through the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine and has done extensive additional training in aesthetics, platelet-rich plasma and stem cells, hair restoration, bioidentical hormones, nutrition, fitness, and sexual health. Currently, she's the medical director of BioRestoration Medical, a very busy clinic with a comprehensive integrative approach to health located in Draper, Utah. Today, we're going to talk to Amy about something we don't often talk about, and that's sexual optimization. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. So we're very excited to talk about sexual health. When I was growing up, I barely learned the birds and bees in high school, but we do know now that it's such an important aspect of our overall well-being. And so how did you get into sexual health? So it was kind of a roundabout story. I actually was an emergency physician for a number of years. I was an ER doctor for about 10 years. And toward the end of that, I had three kids of my own. So three kids within two years, because I had twins and one more, and was just kind of struggling to get back in the ER, You know, had a lot of stress, had a lot of lack of sleep and all the things that a lot of young mothers have. And I started noticing that a lot of my patients that were coming into the ER were having the same kind of struggles. Like they would come into the ER because they were just overwhelmed and stressed out and, you know, just couldn't deal with what was going on in their lives. And so I eventually transitioned out of doing emergency medicine and became interested in kind of integrative medicine and preventative medicine and these other ways to take care of ourselves. Once I started doing that, what happened was I had a lot of patients that would come in you know, and after they kind of got past the initial struggle of whatever it was they were dealing with, they would ask me, okay, now can you help me with my sex life? And I heard this over and over again so many times. So I eventually started becoming interested in, you know, can I help them with their sex life? And so I kind of dove into that field that, that was eight years ago and I just haven't looked back. That's so interesting and yet so important as we were researching you. And again, what I was saying earlier is having so much fun really seeing what you talk about and how you shed light on sex health as a wellness practice too, that it's really important for people to understand what having a good sex life means or into your big picture. So it's a holistic way of looking at your health, which was really a new way of looking at it, right, Dora? Yeah, definitely. I didn't even look at it before. And I remember, Dora, when the kids were little, remember where they went, they had that sex class. Do you remember their teacher told them to come in and they could say any dirty word they wanted to? Do you remember this? Yes. 
And so Dora, after Amy, after we talked to you, Dora was like, I'm going to say, say it, Dora. <laughs> I can't do it. My <laughs> um, penis, whatever. I, you know, it's challenging when you grow up the way I did to say those words, even though I had four brothers. But anyway, they won't want me bringing them into this podcast. (laughs) So what are the statistics surrounding sexual health? I mean, what kind of dysfunctions are there and what's going on? People don't talk about it a lot, but we know that about 40% of men over the age of 40 have some degree of erectile dysfunction, not all the time, but at least some degree of ED. And that number goes up by about 10% per decade for men. So 50% at age 50, 60 at 60. And then we also know that about 40% of women have some degree of sexual dysfunction at some point. It may not be all the same time. And that could be anything from low libido to arousal problems, to orgasmic problems, to pain, or some combination of those things. So, you know, it's a lot of people who have sexual dysfunction. And with men, we know that about 75% of men who have dysfunction, and I would say this is probably even more for women, about 75% of them are untreated currently. So you have a lot of people who are having problems who are not getting treated. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that, but probably a lot of people just don't know that there are actually treatments out there that are available these days. That's so interesting. So 70% of men are having dysfunction of some sort, and yet they could get treated. Like you're saying, it's just nothing that they have to live with, but that actually they could talk to somebody about. But that brings up the point of shame. Do you think a lot of times people don't talk about it because they're shamed or embarrassed or how does that go? Absolutely. I think shame is a big part of it. You know, men are told that you have to have this sort of sexual performance. We use the word performance a lot when we talked about men. Like it's a show that they're putting on for someone, right? <laughs> Which is really stressful. Like it's a show every time. And I think, you know, for men, they feel that and they feel like they have to kind of overcome that and be macho and, you know, be tough and all of those things. And then for women, I think it's a little bit different. I think women are just kind of told to be quiet kind of just take it and it's normal and it's fine and whatever you're experiencing is okay. And it is okay, but if you want something better, that's also okay. But don't women fake it too? (laughs) I mean, they fake it so that they don't hurt the feelings of the man. Yeah, totally. They fake it for a lot of reasons, but yeah, so they don't hurt the man's feelings or just to have it be done with and be over with because it's not very fun. And they're just like, I'd rather be watching Bravo with my my friends. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So how can we learn to stay sexually healthy? What can we do? So there's a lot of things. I mean, there are things that you can do just from a prevention standpoint, just understanding that the sexual system, you know, it's like any organ system in our bodies and getting blood flow to the sexual organs is really important. And as we get older and we start to have atherosclerosis and plaque building up in our blood vessels, we, you know, start having problems with blood flow. So anything that you can do that can help your cardiovascular system. So things like avoiding sugary foods and avoiding sedentary lifestyle and avoiding obesity and, you know, keeping your blood pressure and cholesterol in check, staying active, exercising, you know, all of these things, avoiding stress or dealing with stress. All of these things are important just to be healthy. And those go a long way towards reducing sort of full body inflammation, which is one of the risk factors that leads to atherosclerosis and lack of blood flow. So thinking about getting blood flow to the sexual organs is important because that's one of the major causes of erectile dysfunction in men. And it can also cause uh, problems for women as well. It's just the blood's just not getting there. Or if it is, it's not staying there. So that's one of the things that I think that it's an ongoing every day. You know, we should be kind of working towards that. Smoking is horrible for your sexual system. So please... (laughs) 
get rid of the cigarettes if you can. And then there's some more specific things. Like for instance, we know that as you get older, you lose the ability to make something called nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is the main chemical messenger in your body that tells your blood vessels to vasodilate. So they're small and they get bigger and that's called vasodilation. And that's how you get blood to different parts of your body. So it's really important to vasodilate. And because nitric oxide is actually made within the blood vessels themselves, as you get older and you develop this atherosclerosis, you can't make as much nitric oxide. And so now you have this problem where you have these more narrow blood vessels because they're already filled with plaque and you can't open them up and make them bigger because you've lost nitric oxide. So there are some different things you can do to maintain your nitric oxide, but that's another thing that's really important as you get older to think about. So, you know, things like exercise will increase your levels. Getting some sunlight is actually really good for nitric oxide. Red light therapy, PEMF, some of these sort of gadgety kinds of things that are out there can actually increase nitric oxide. And then eating a, a diet that's high in nitrates. So things like green leafy vegetables, arugula, things like that, as well as beets are classically high in nitrates. And your body can actually make nitric oxide from some of these foods, as long as you're not using antiseptic mouthwash or acid blocking medications. Yeah. Tell us about the mouthwash and Listerine. So, you know, when you eat nitrate rich foods, your body can convert the nitrate into nitric oxide. And this becomes increasingly important over the age of about 40, because this is a major source of nitric oxide for when we get older than 40. But the first step of that conversion actually happens in your mouth. There are these little good bacteria that live in your mouth and their job is to convert this nitrate into nitrite. And if you don't have those bacteria because you've killed them with the antiseptic mouthwash that you've been using every day because you thought it was so healthy for you, then you're not able to make nitric oxide from food. So I always tell people, you can still brush your teeth, please do, but avoid the ones that are going to just wipe out your whole oral microbiome. Somebody else said too, when you do have bad breath, oftentimes that might be an indicator of something else, right? A gut health kind of thing. So that's something to listen to as well. And you talk a lot about how looking at sexual health is a way in to somebody's real health. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Although you are saying that it's your diet, it's so much. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people will come in, you know, men, especially they have erectile dysfunction and they're like, oh my gosh, like we got to fix this. And they'll come in, you know, with that. And they're expecting that we can just do, you know, one sort of magic wand thing and we can fix it or give them a pill and they can fix it, which it's possible in some cases, but you have to remember that ED oftentimes is an early warning sign of other things that are going on, particularly cardiovascular disease. Um, a lot of times erectile dysfunction is like the first sign that you have atherosclerosis and this, you know, it may happen five or 10 years before you have a heart attack or a stroke, but it's the sort of early warning sign. And the same thing can happen with women. You know, there's lots of causes of sexual dysfunction. Like for instance, if you have low libido, it could be any number of things. It could be that your estrogen and your testosterone and your progesterone levels have kind of gotten out of whack a little bit. It could be that your thyroid is too high or too low, or that your stress is a problem and you're not dealing with it, or, you know, or that you're inflamed from the choices that you're, you know, it could be a hundred different things that are causing that symptom. And so getting to the root of that actually provides us a way to get healthier without really knowing that we're getting healthier. Right, right. Viagra, does that help? I mean, is that something that people just go on and then it figures it out? Or what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I mean, Viagra and the medications like that, they're called the PDE5Is. And the way that they work actually is they prevent the breakdown of nitric oxide. So it's keeping more nitric oxide around longer. So now it kind of all makes sense, right? Like you have this nitric oxide and if you prevent the body from breaking it down, then it will stay kind of in the sexual organs, you know, in the penis longer. And that allows the blood to flow in and stay there longer. So the problem with Viagra is if you don't make enough nitric oxide to begin with, then those medications are not going to work, right? You have to make your own nitric oxide. But I think it's a great tool. A lot of people really like Viagra and it works well, and it's not something that's addictive. I mean, it can be psychologically addictive, but it's not, your body doesn't get used to it and kind of get an addiction to it. And, you know, really anything that keeps people like for men, keeps men having erections is actually really good for the cells within the penis. It's when people stop having erections, especially like nocturnal erections or, you know, any erections, then those cells in the penis are not getting enough oxygen and blood and they actually will start to die over time. So whatever we can do, whether it's using Viagra, using penis pumps, using, you know, some of these other things. Okay. We wanted to be the ones to ask about penis pumps. <laughs> you can still ask. Go ahead. Go ahead. What is it and how do you use it? I should have brought like some toys to show yes. and tell you guys, right? Yes. But uh, yes, tell us what it is, but it makes sense now. It's just, you've got to exercise, right? It's like a muscle. Is a penis a muscle? It's not a muscle exactly, but there are muscles around it, but it's exactly like that. Like when you go to the gym and exercise, like your rest of your body, you know, you get blood flow all different places and it's, you get big muscles and all this, but the penis actually is interesting because it doesn't get extra blood flow when you're exercising. Like it's kind of like in its own little land, right? The way that it gets extra blood flow is by having an erection. And so either that's, you're having sex a lot and you're having a lot of erections or it's a nocturnal erections, you know, which is something that happens while you're sleeping or it's something like using a penis pump. So with a penis pump is basically a cylinder that you kind of put over the penis. And then it's a vacuum device that uses negative pressure to pull blood into the penis. And it sounds miserable, but it takes a little practice, but it's not a big deal. I have a question. Do you use the penis pump before sex, right before you're about to have sex? Or when do you use it? Or do you use it like as a side thing? There's several ways to do it. If you're having difficulties getting erections, then you can use the pump to get an erection. And then you can put like a, something like a tourniquet or a band at the base to keep the blood there in order to be able to have sex. But the way that I have my patients use it most often is sort of as a separate thing, basically, you know, 10 minutes a day of just pumping, kind of get the blood in, let it release, get the blood in. And that's sort of like exercising your penis. So women have similar devices, evidently, I learned that from you, that you can use to exercise the vagina. Yeah, there are some really great home devices out there. So for women, one of the main issues as we get older is our pelvic floor starts to become weaker. The pelvic floor is like this bowl of muscles that live in your pelvis. So just think of like this bowl of muscles and their ability to stay strong is important for everything from keeping your urine in the bladder, you know, like the people who, when you cough or sneeze and you kind of have a little bit, you urinate a little bit, sometimes that's a pelvic floor problem. It's also important for being able to have orgasms, being able to have pleasure. Like it's this bowl of muscles that does all these important things for women. And as we get older, or if we've had multiple children, then those muscles become weak. And so some of the tools that we have are just ways to strengthen the pelvic floor. So certainly you can go to a physical therapist and I would recommend that if you're having a lot of problems or you can do Kegels, but there are actually some cool devices out now that kind of help you without having to do all those things. For instance, there's an intravaginal TENS unit, transelectrical neurostimulation, like causes your muscles to like contract. 
So there are actually devices like the intensity device or the apex device that you go inside the vagina and it's like a TENS unit for your pelvic floor muscles. And it's these crazy contractions. It's like Kegels on steroids kind of thing, but you can kind of train those muscles that way. Or there's some red light therapy devices, like it's red light therapy, which people use for their skin and other things. But there's one that goes in the vagina that actually increases the energy production of the mitochondria and the cells. So you can actually have improvement in blood flow and lubrication and sensation and things like that. So there's some interesting home devices out there. You know, one thing that Dora and I talk a lot about just in our world of holistic health and wellness is bio-individuality, right? So every body is different and everything's different. So why is it that some women can be multi-orgasmic and others aren't? And can men be multi-orgasmic or can they not be? They can be. There's actually some trainings that men can do. There's some books out there that will like, there's like a multi-orgasmic male book. I think that is one of them, but basically with men, it involves not ejaculating when they have an orgasm. Cause those are two different things like the ejaculation and the orgasm, being able to sort of unpair those two things and sort of practicing that eventually some men can certainly become multi-orgasmic because they're not ejaculating in between. And then women, I think with women, it's a lot of it is the same kind of thing. It's a lot of it's training and behavioral therapy kind of stuff and working on it. Certainly there's a structural anatomy piece of that as well, but I think that it's possible for most women if they were to kind of work at it. (laughs) Right, right, right. That it's impossible and it's there. Along those lines of men having orgasms, you know, more than one, can you have too much sex? I mean, how much sex should people have? That's a question I get a lot. There's not a set amount of sex you're supposed to be having. You know, a lot of it, it's very personal, very much depends on your relationship and what feels good to you, what feels right to you. So I would never say you have to have this much sex to be healthy. I will say that most of the studies that have been done that look at sexual health and the benefits of sex in other parts of our health, like, you know, benefits of sex on blood pressure or pain or sleep or heart disease or whatever it is, most of those studies have people who are doing sex about one to two times a week is kind of what that group of people that's considered to be sexually healthy. And is sex defined as having an orgasm? Is that what sex is or is sex the act of intercourse or, you know, with your partner? You don't have to have an orgasm. And depending on, you know, like in the research, there are some studies that it's partnered sex, you know, like traditional sort of partnered sex. And then there are some studies that are actually looking at sex by yourself, like masturbation, you know, whether or not you're orgasmic. And so there's lots of different studies depending on what you're looking at, but no, there's no sort of right way or particular way to have sex. And certainly, you know, we know that there's all different variations out there and you don't have to have an orgasm either. That's just sort of a, you know, an extra thing that you can do. So if you don't have an orgasm, are you still getting the benefits of like good blood flow and all the other things? So it is still happening. You're still getting a lot of the benefits. I mean, there are some benefits just to the orgasm itself, like there, you know, oxytocin boost and serotonin boost and some of the neurotransmitters in the brain and some things like that. But certainly the bonding experience, the exercise element of it, like you can have all of that parts of it without having to have an orgasm. What about pornography? I mean, is pornography okay? A mild dose of it? What do you say about pornography and sexual health? I feel like pornography is like anything else, like the dose makes the toxin or the poison. Anything can be relatively safe, you know, in good doses, you know, water could be safe in regular doses, but if you were to get too much water, then you could drown yourself and it would be dangerous. I think that pornography is the same. Certainly it is possible to be getting too much pornography, you know, becoming too wrapped up in it. 
And what happens with pornography is each time you're watching these images, you get this dopamine hit. The dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters that hits your brain and causes you to have erections and sexual responses. And so it's this feel-good hormone, right? Like we love it. It's a feel-good neurotransmitter. So you're, you're watching this pornography and you get dopamine and it feels good. But what happens is you kind of become where you need more and more of that. So you need to watch more pornography or you need to watch more graphic images or you need to watch more rough images or, you know, it kind of escalates. Then you have someone who really requires like a pretty heavy dose of visual stimuli to become aroused. And then you go to the real world and all of a sudden, you know, your partner, who's a normal person, doesn't look like this and is not doing those things and it can become hard to get aroused. So I see this a lot in younger men, especially they're spending so much time with pornography and with masturbation in themselves that they kind of become unable to enjoy actual people. But that's like any addiction, really. You need more and more and more. Like you said, levels of it is important. And at any level, it can become a toxin. That's a really good way of looking at it. You had said for sexual health too, that getting outside in the sunshine, and I think what you were referring to is vitamin D3 or getting vitamin D, right? And getting all the things that kind of, again, keep your body really healthy. Yeah. Vitamin D is definitely important. We know that it's important for hormone production, for like testosterone production and, and estrogen and all the different hormones. It feels good. It increases your serotonin, and which is also something that's kind of ha- makes you happy. Uh, but there's actually benefits just to the light itself of being out in the sun. So not necessarily the vitamin D, but just the actual light. Again, you know, the light itself can increase your nitric oxide production. So that's one of the ways you could do that is get out and get a little sunshine. Definitely a tool that I like for people to use. What about sugar and the effects on sexual health? I don't think a little sugar is a problem, but over time when we're eating either lots of sugar or lots of carbohydrates that get broken down into sugar, that can become inflammatory. And anything that's inflammatory, anything that causes your body to go into this inflammatory state can put you at risk to develop atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease, which again is this problem. The other thing with a lot of inflammation is that like for men, if you have a lot of inflammation over time, it actually can kind of change the cells within the penis. So normally you have these very elastic, smooth muscle cells in the penis so that they can expand and fill with blood. But if you have a lot of inflammation over time in your life from lifestyle or or whatever else, then those healthy, smooth muscle cells can actually get replaced by scar tissue or fat cells. And so you lose the ability to have this sort of full erection. And that's actually one of the major causes of being unable to maintain erections is that the cells in the penis are not healthy. And whether that's from a lot of inflammation or from low testosterone over time or from other reasons, that can all happen. Wow. So if the man has the erection and and like you always see the ads that if you have your erection for more than four hours, go to the emergency room. What's that? Yeah, that's called priapism. And it's basically just for whatever reason, the nitric oxide essentially is staying put in the penis. It's not getting degraded and the blood is staying there, or you have some kind of structural problem that's preventing the blood from backing up. But yeah, when I was an ER doctor, we definitely had patients that would come in and, you know, they'd had an erection for eight hours and they were like, I think that he needs some help. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you do? You can start with doing some medications. Like there are certain cold medications actually that can help kind of reverse that response. And then worst case scenario, the doctor would actually put a needle into the corpus cavernosum and just draw out the blood that's causing that. I have a question and it's kind of a funny question, but men make their penis size like a big thing. (laughs) And in our hyper-sexualized world, we hear about 
penis size. Okay. I'm not interested in it, but we hear about it. And why is that? And how does that factor into sex? As far as why it's such a big deal, I'm not sure where that came from. I'm not sure when we tied, you know, penis size to virility or to, you know, like strength or any of those things. It's not usually an issue. It depends on, obviously it depends on the partner, but with women, what's interesting about women is that only about 25% of women actually are able to orgasm from just regular penetrative sex. So 75% of us actually are able to orgasm from clitoral stimulation primarily. And so the size of the penis is usually less important because it's not necessarily about how large it is and how far it's going in the vagina. It's about what are you doing with it? And also, are you using other things to get the clitoral stimulation, which is what actually most of us need? So for some of our listeners who are older, what about sex after menopause? How can you help people with that? So a few different things for, you know, after menopause, your hormones change a lot. You have a a drop in your estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. So one of the things I recommend is talking to your doctor about hormone replacement. So I really am a fan of bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. So that's using hormones that are identical to the ones in your own body. And you can replace estrogen, you can replace testosterone, which is actually important for women as well, and progesterone. And when you do that, you can prevent some of the menopause related changes that happen in the vagina. So if you don't have estrogen for a period of time, then you start seeing changes in the vagina where the tissue becomes really thin and friable and irritated and dry and sex becomes painful for a lot of women and it's not fun. And then of course that feeds back to your brain and is like, let's not do that again. And your libido goes down and your arousal goes down, but getting your hormones kind of back to levels that were a little bit higher can actually make a huge difference just because it keeps the vaginal health intact. And it also continues to supply your brain with hormones that are saying, Hey, let's do sex. This is fun. Mm -hmm. And the whole bioidentical hormone issue really has evolved, right? So now all the things that we'd heard before about how it increases risk of heart disease, increases risk of cancer, is that sort of not the case anymore? Or are these a different kind of hormone? The Women's Health Initiative, which was the big study that came out, you know, I think it's about 10 or so years ago at this point, they were studying non-bioidentical estrogen and progesterone. So the estrogen actually was made from horse urine. The progesterone, which was actually the problem that was really the problem piece was the progesterone. The non-bioidentical progestin is what it's called. That was the part that caused increased heart attacks and breast cancer and a lot of these things. But because it was all kind of done in one study, everyone was like, okay, we got to stop all of these hormones. But really with bioidentical estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, there's not an increased risk of heart disease or stroke or any of those things. With bioidentical estrogen, there's a very small increase in breast cancer risk in certain people. So you want to make sure that you're a low risk person for breast cancer, but even that has been challenged quite a bit. And there are so many other benefits like, you know, improved bone health and brain health and cardiovascular health and vaginal health and these things to using bioidentical hormones that unless you have a reason not to, or you're supposed to it, I think it's worth looking into. So in order to take the bioidentical hormones, is there an age limit or can you do it at any age? most people are going to be within, you know, 10 years or so of menopause. And the further you get out from when you went into menopause, the riskier it is to start certain types of hormones, like oral hormones can increase your risk of heart disease and blood clots. So 
you want to sort of look at your different options. You can, we can do hormones, like we can do transdermal hormones through the skin. We can do sublingual under the tongue. We can do pellets where we do little procedures and put them in, or you can do oral hormones. So there's different hormones that can be useful depending on your age, how far you are from menopause, your genetics, things like that. And again, that's going to help, like you said, not just your vaginal health or sexual health, it's helping other kinds of things too. Yeah, there's definitely benefits with bone health, which is a big one for women. We know estrogen is very helpful for preventing some of the bone loss that we have with age and the osteoporosis. And there's studies that, you know, that show that it can be helpful for everything from brain health to cardiovascular health to, you know, keeping your muscles strong and avoiding sarcopenia, which is when you lose muscle strength over time, like testosterone is important for that. So there are a lot of things like that, that you want to look at, like, not just how are you feeling right now and can we make you feel better, but also like what's going to happen in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and can we prevent some of the age-related declines in health and frailty that happen with age. I thought it was so interesting when I heard you say that for men, the testosterone levels go down with age, but it's also gone down through history. Yeah. As a population, our men's testosterone levels now are quite a bit lower than they were even 50 years ago. And there's a number of reasons for that. I think that one reason is our men are less active. They're sitting around more, as are our women but they're less active. They're more overweight, which is going to reduce your testosterone. There's more diabetes, which is going to reduce your testosterone. There's more sort of environmental toxins, which can, you know, can wreak havoc on the hormone pathways. There's all these different reasons. Our stress is a lot higher or chronically at least, which is also going to reduce testosterone. So there's a lot of things that we are doing now as a population that are unhealthier. And it's being reflected in the fact that our men now have lower testosterone levels, lower sperm counts, lower ability you know, to be fertile, uh, which I think is going to eventually you know, come back to bite us. So why should we be having more sex? So sex is really powerful. It's really beneficial. We know from an emotional standpoint, people who have an active, healthy sex life, they tend to have less depression, less anxiety, better self-confidence, you know, general increase in happiness. There are some studies that show that active, healthy sex life as you get older can reduce your risk of cognitive decline. So it can actually improve your memory and changes some things in your hippocampus and your brain. So that's important. Having an active sex life can reduce your blood pressure. It can help you sleep better. It can reduce your pain. There's actually some interesting studies with migraine patients. And when they are more sexually active, their migraine pain is less than when they're not having sex. So there's this interesting sort of sex pain thing. Sex can be helpful for boosting the immune system. There was actually a study in college kids that showed that if they had sex one to two times a week, they had higher salivary IgA levels, which essentially gave them some protection against colds and viruses compared to their colleagues who were not having sex that often. And then there's the social benefit of sex, which I think is really important is, you know, it brings patients closer to their partner or partners. And this is what I see in my practice. I have patients who come in and they have sexual dysfunction. You know, they don't complain to me that they have high blood pressure or their immune system isn't working as well. They complain to me that they feel disconnected from their partner. And this is what bothers them. And, you know, as someone who's looking at this, I see that we're sort of in this world where disconnection is more and more common, right? And loneliness and disconnection kill as many people, they say, as obesity and alcohol abuse at this point. So I think that the ability to connect and to sort of exercise our humanness in this world where that's becoming more more rare is, I think, really important. I have a question. Is there a certain age limit where you really need to stop having sex? Like, for example, I remember when Vice President Nelson Rockefeller died having sex with his mistress. I mean, is that a crazy question? 
It's not a crazy question. When I was back in the ER, my ER days, there would always be patients that would come in at like 5 a.m., 5 and 6 a.m., and it would be men who are having chest pain, who are having heart attacks. And one of the questions I always ask them is, what were you doing before this came on? And a lot of times they were having sex. So yes, you, you want to have enough cardiovascular fitness to be able to have sex. But assuming that you are cardiovascularly fit, then I don't think there's any age that you should stop. What about like all the new things? Because you're anti-aging longevity expert as well. What about all those new things like PRP, um, stem cells, shockwave therapy, that kind of stuff? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we do a lot of that in my practice. So I'll start with shockwave therapy. Shockwave therapy is also called low-intensity extracorporeal shockwave therapy. That's the long version. In the US, there's a company called Gainswave that has kind of brought this to the public. But basically, the idea behind it, we, we use it for men primarily, although we can use it for women, but it's to treat men with erectile dysfunction or just to kind of increase you know, erectile function. And it's basically a machine that uses high intensity sound waves delivered through this handheld device into the penis. And the sound waves cause a little bit of trauma, mild. And what that does is it tells your body, hey, we have a little trauma, we gotta repair this. And so all of a sudden you have this regeneration of tissue, you have increased blood vessel formation, you have increased nitric oxide, which we've talked about and we love it. We have stem cells coming in, repairing the tissue, you know, repairing those smooth muscle cells that were maybe not working as well, or even nerves have been regenerated with some of these technologies. But essentially you do a series of treatments, usually, you know, six or 12 over the course of a few months. And it can be game-changing for men with ED. It's something that's non-invasive. It's easy. It takes 30 minutes at a time. And there are actually some home machines that have just come out that I don't have enough information to recommend them, but I can say that I have some patients at least that have reported back some positive findings with that. The other things that I do, I do a lot of regenerative injections. So platelet-rich plasma, which you mentioned, which is PRP, platelet-rich plasma just comes from your blood. So I take the patient's blood, I spin it, and I isolate the platelets and I get that platelet layer. And then I essentially inject that back in. So for women, I'm injecting the clitoris and the anterior vaginal wall, kind of where the G spot is. And for men, I'm injecting into the penis itself. And basically what PRP does is it same kinds of things. It communicates with the body, tells your body, we've kind of had an injury, increases blood flow, repairs nerves, um, increases the health of the cells. And we can also use sort of stronger things. Now we can use stem cells from the patient, like the patient's bone marrow or the patient's fat. We can get some stem cells from those tissues, or we can use something like exosomes, which are kind of like the action arm of a stem cell. Essentially, they have little growth factors and messenger RNA and such, but essentially we can use exosomes almost like we would stem cells to try to bring about the same types of regenerative changes for both men and women. And are these pretty effective? There's certainly research out there looking at stem cells and PRP. There's less exosome research because they're pretty new. But there are studies that have shown that stem cells can be helpful for, you know, men who have ED from any number of causes like diabetes or high blood pressure or prostate disease in restoring either, you know, not always full function, but, you know, partial function, for instance. I had a gentleman a couple of years ago that I saw in my practice who had had a prostate cancer and he had surgery for it. And afterwards, you know, he had severe ED. He wasn't able to have an erection despite trying Viagra and injectables and, you know, all of these things. And he had gone to his urologist who basically had said, you know, we can put a prosthetic 
penis inside, but there's nothing else we can do. And this guy was, you know, he was 50, he was young, he was healthy. So he came to see me and I told him, I wasn't sure that it would help, but let's give it a shot. And so we did some stem cell and PRP injections in the penis. And then the shockwave therapy, I think he did like 12 sessions and made sure his testosterone was good. And about four months later, I talked to him and he said that he and his wife had just had sex for the first time in four years. Oh, that's awesome. It's incredible where science is going and what's happening now. So it's amazing to hear you talk about that. It's just so interesting and fascinating and just really appreciate that you're out there talking about this. Yes, thank you. I know I've learned a lot. That's for sure. Well, I'm just excited that you guys said the word penis on it on the air. I know. (laughs) It wasn't easy. (laughs) Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.